chapter 39. What do you think, my lord, of all these wonderful events? It all ends up like a regular tragic comedy. But after all, it is not so surprising, perhaps, as it seems at the first glance, since the theater is only a copy of real life. Théophile Gautier, Captain Fracas, 1861. The next morning, I wake beside Zoya on the beige carpet of Dawn's apartment in northeast Portland. Her dreadlocks, smelling faintly of menthol tobacco and almond oil, splay across my rolled-up jacket under our heads. A thick pink quilt covers us. I stretch, and my bare feet poke out into the cold air. They rattle against crumpled beer cans. The floor is also littered with plastic cups, jeans, undershirts, several sparkly wigs, a leather belt, and long strings of beads. I sit up and yawn. Dawn and Sal are sprawled by the television, where Blanche yells something at Sophia while Rose looks befuddled. Why they are watching more Golden Girls episodes, I cannot imagine. The wall clock reads almost two in the afternoon. Zoya stirs, pulling the quilt tight around her. You're getting up? She mutters. Yeah, it's late. I've got homework. Her eyelids flutter, then shut again. Okay, I sleep more. Call later. I extricate myself and tuck the cover back around Zoya's chin, then plant a kiss against her smooth brown cheek. She smiles. I shiver as a draft chills my bare torso. Hard rain rattles roof shingles overhead as I dress. I gently lift Zoya's head and replace my jacket with a sofa cushion. Salazar looks over, red-eyed. Going? Yeah. Did you two ever pass out? Don groans. Ugh, somewhat. It's all a blur. This was probably my best party ever. I think everyone dressed up. Except you, Ross. Sorry. I had a dinner party earlier. I'll make a better effort next time. Anyway, gotta go catch a bus. See you guys later. I exit Don's apartment into pelting rain. The side pocket of my jacket contains a black stocking cap and wool gloves with the fingers cut off. I slip these on and walk eastward. Fortunately, the Hollywood Light Rail Transfer Station has several covered stops. At number 75, a forlorn-looking waif pulls her dark hoodie around narrow shoulders, and two gutterpunks with well-worn butt flaps share the glass-enclosed shelter. They reek of shag tobacco and body odor. I lean against one support post and pull out my most recent Babette recommendation, Endymion, by the 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Water droplets run down transparent side panels with a fury as overhead clouds tear apart. Liquid shadows dribble along each page. Before long, a southbound bus pulls up, wet brakes squealing. I take a seat near the rear and continue my book. The bus rolls along, wipers in constant motion, left, right, left, right, left, right. Condensation shrouds each window, and I wipe a circle clear with the back of my hand to monitor street signs and landmarks. We pass Division Street, then Powell Boulevard and Trader Joe's, until finally Woodstock nears. I yank the stop cord. Upon standing, my boots slip against the wet floor. I grab a vertical support to remain upright. One of the punks snickers. I ignore him and step out of the back door as several young Reed students with book bags clamber in the front. The rain has finally paused, yet thick drops tremble and fall from naked tree limbs along Tolman Street. Our neighbor's big pickup truck still has a small dent around the rear wheel well where Babette backed into it the last time. Her driveway sits empty, as expected. The Mount St. Helens tour is a long one. My professor and Rosalind shouldn't return for a while. I can tidy up from last night, then maybe get some homework done. 
I walk up the front steps, wipe my feet, and unlock the front door. Every light burns, and no letters wait under the postal slot. Strange. Mail usually comes early on Saturdays. I move into the dining room. A fresh copy of Maclean's and several letters sit on the table. Now I pause, uneasy. From the kitchen comes a faint murmur, then something squeaks against linoleum. I turn the corner, heart pounding. In the breakfast nook sit two women. I only recognize Rosalind, yet the other seems oddly familiar, with oval glasses and long white hair coiled in a bun. I look from one to the other, and they stare back, faces grim. My mouth opens. There's something I should ask, but I don't know how. Rosalind speaks first. Ross, Elizabeth died this morning. She had a heart attack. There was nothing anyone could do. I drop my bag on the floor. Voices continue, no longer intelligible. Language splinters apart and shards cut every direction. Even pain feels muffled as I try fitting sharp pieces together. The woman who isn't Rosalind stands and approaches. I focus on her face. It is lined and pale, with intense violet eyes. Her mouth moves, the words precise. I am sorry, Ross. Sometimes life happens. My name is Sandra Bailey. I work at the PCC Records Department. You came through my office last year, about transfer credits. Are you all right? Do you need to sit down? My head throbs and both hands tremble uncontrollably. Sandra leads me toward the red formica table and pulls out a chair. I sink into it. Rosalind turns her head, gaze steeled. The meek facsimile of my professor has vanished. There are things you should know. Rosalind begins. Let's be completely truthful with one another. I lower my eyes. Well, I'll go first. A confession. Every email you got from Babette, I typed. She just dictated them. Rosalind's mouth curls into a tight smile. Oh, I always knew that. But your honesty is appreciated. So I will tell you who I really am. It requires traveling back in time, the year 1946, when Albert returned to Yakima from France. You see, Albert never met his birth mother, Mildred Sweet, before. You can imagine this strange homecoming, he, a very worldly young man of 17, and she, a simple world woman, then only in her mid-thirties. There's no easy way of saying it. They had sex. Albert never got along with her husband, Albert Ellsworth Sr., and immediately fled, eventually ending up in Portland. What he didn't realize is Mildred became pregnant. The resulting child was me. Rosalind sits back, lips pursed. Behind us, cheese molders away under the glass bell, rind dark around a pasty white core. Numbly, I stare out the window. A crow dips its beak into the concrete birdbath. Intermittent raindrops fleck the surface. I rub my forehead. So, then you are Babette's sister, like she said? But daughter also. Shit. Sorry, when did you discover this? Several years ago? I hesitated contacting Elizabeth for quite some time. A lost brother? A father? Then to find perhaps a mother? What could I even say? How do you begin the conversation? But... As you know, I eventually did. This wasn't the best reunion, but it was all we could have. It's all we had time for. Her voice trails off. But what happened today? 
This morning, Babette. Rosalind clears her throat and sniffs. We woke early, and right from the beginning, Elizabeth didn't feel well. I advised canceling the tour, but she refused. We had a little breakfast, just oatmeal, though she hardly ate. Then I drove us down to the Sylvania campus parking lot. Elizabeth felt sick and cold. Oh, the way it hurt her was dreadful. We stayed in the car, heater running until everyone boarded. We climbed on, but once Elizabeth reached the top step, she simply collapsed, right there in front of 40 students. It was just that sudden? I ask, shuddering. Did she say anything? No, not a word. She just dropped. I was right behind her and thought maybe she only tripped. Someone with a cell phone dialed 911. Elizabeth was barely breathing when the ambulance arrived. They put her in back and took me along. I sat, holding her hand, holding it until she just let go. I think she knew her teaching career was over. She could just tell and gave up. I held her hand and talked to her. Ross, that's all I could do. I told her she'd be okay. I told her she wasn't alone. At this, Rosalind's voice cracks. Sandra reaches across the table and clasps her hand. You're being so strong, she says quietly, then looks at me. Rosalind didn't know what to do, Ross. She knew Bobby trusted you completely, but she couldn't get a hold of you. There was no one else. So the school contacted me for assistance in this unusual matter. You see, I married Albert a short while after Billy's death. We were close friends for decades and contemplated spending our final years together, but as the reality of his decision to become a woman set in, I realized things couldn't work. It was just, well, too weird. I'm a grandmother for crying out loud, and I, well, I'm not a lesbian. We divorced in 1994, just after her sex reassignment. Rosalind hoped I could reach Bobby's immediate relatives. Fortunately, I found some phone numbers. Two of her daughters from Washington are en route. They should arrive in less than an hour. Oh no! No! I leap to my feet. The room spins. Orange enameled pots blur amidst nautical wallpaper through a mist of panic. The women stare at me, stunned. You were right, I cry. I do know exactly what Babette wanted. She was very specific with me. No family at all. In fact, she said if they came to the house, I should call the police. Sandra frowns, her face pained. I'm sorry. I didn't know. It seemed the best thing. Are you sure that's what she said? Yes. She spelled out every word, and very recently, almost as if she knew, she made me promise. I pace back to the refrigerator and press my hand against the cool metal. This is awful. Sandra shakes her head. Well, I don't have a cell number for them. It's too late to stop this. I guess if Bobby wanted police involved, that's your decision. A sheen of sweat spreads across my brow. I take a deep breath. Everything is off script now. I'll just improvise from here and follow her wishes as best I can. Rosalind pushes a lock of gray hair back from her temple. I can't say I'm looking forward to this reunion either. My eyes focus on her, an ordinary woman who might blend in seamlessly at any church social or PTA meeting. Suddenly, a wave of sympathy floods through me. 
At least I voluntarily stayed in Babette's pantry and shared her adventures. Poor Rosalind lost all chance of escape the day Mildred Sweet and young Albert connected in 1946, shackling her through blood to a story more bizarre than any ancient UFO theory. Antique clocks tick away. I stare at the telephone. Bonnie Church should have been alerted, not Babette's family. Would Rosalind and Sandra mind if I started burning Canadian papers right now? Maybe I could ask them for help. It's only to cover up some kind of shady international finances over who controls a fake Benedictine convent. At this, I almost laugh, but turn it into a choked cough. Sandra raises an eyebrow. Are you okay? No, not really. This is just absurd. It's so perfect in some ways. Babette wanted to teach until the end, and she did. She loved shocking people, and with a final act like that, no one will ever forget her. But now the people she liked least are almost here. And you know, I don't think I can just slam the door in their faces. They do have more right here than me now. How could I call the police anyway? I'm just a weird subculture kid from the basement. Maybe if I'm lucky, they'll give me 20 minutes to clear out. Rosalind's eyes widen. I'm sure they wouldn't do that. You helped Elizabeth so much. I look away. Maybe. I guess we'll find out soon enough. The light outside is dimming. It's half past five. Despite nothing in my belly since a stampede of cheap beers last night, I can't imagine eating. My fingernails tap restlessly on the red formica. Outside, the rainstorm has picked up again. It clatters against every window with relentless fury. Forty-five minutes later, the doorbell rings. Sandra and Rosalind gaze at me, expectantly. I walk down the hallway, take a deep breath, and open the door. On the porch stand six figures, heads wreathed in mist from the cold. Hello, I'm Ross, the pantry dweller. Come inside, I invite. The group moves past me and circles awkwardly. There are two women who must be in their mid-fifties, one stout with dark bobbed hair, the other taller who looks around curiously through horn-rimmed glasses under gray bangs. The shorter one fixates on me, eyes serious. Hello, Ross. I'm Joyce. This is my sister Ethel. She gestures toward the taller woman, then squeezes the arm of a pudgy man who nods at me, lips very bright within a clipped white beard. My husband, Alan. This fellow removes a hand from his jacket pocket and shakes mine solemnly. Drops of rain spatter his Burberry scarf. Ethel wipes her glasses and sniffs. Beside her slouches a skinny fellow with prominent cheekbones and a balding pate. He straightens up and pumps my hand. Jeffrey, he rasps. I'm Ethel's husband. Sorry, bit under the weather. Got the cold going around, you know. His eyes rove about the entryway, from my professor's photograph in her Santa costume to relentlessly ticking clocks. Beside a hefty, bearded man around my age, I recognize Babette's granddaughter, who surprised me the day I moved in. She removes a black beret covering her bright blonde hair and grins. Hey, Ross. Nice seeing you again. Sorry I startled you that one time. Was afraid Grandpa might run out into the street all naked and cause a scene. Anyway, I'm Lauren. This is my boyfriend, Robbie. Mom called us up a few hours ago. That's how we heard the news. She glances at Joyce. I live in town these days, but thought we should wait until her and the fam showed up before coming over. So as you can imagine, everyone is curious. What's going on? Each of the three unmistakable Ellsworth faces stare at me. Their male partners shift uneasily from foot to foot. I clear my throat. <clears> throat> well, there are people you should meet. Come this way. 
Everyone follows me into the kitchen. Sandra and Rosalind are still seated around the small table, but rise and greet them. I retreat, leaning against the counter. Rain streams down steamy windows and cookware from last night's dinner party still soaks away in the sink. Tiny black webs of mold spin across Babette's cheese under its glass bell, and my stomach revolts. I choke down bile as fragments of conversation float around me. A heart attack? Right in front of everyone? Those poor students. Such a shock. Wait, Sandra, you were Dad's second? No, third wife? Oh, Rosalind, what an ordeal. Thank you for sharing everything with us. Dazed, I study the physiognomy, shadowy imprints of my professor passed down through generations. Ticks from every clock ring out like hammer blows, vibrations rattling me boots to bones. Voices fall silent at last. Now Joyce turns toward me. My heart seizes. Well, she asks, what do we do now? It seems like you probably know what my father wanted more than anyone. This is it. You're right, I admit. I do know exactly what Babette wanted. She told me that when she died, I shouldn't have contact with any relatives, and if her family showed up at the house, well, not to let them in. I look down. The linoleum tiles are tracked with residue from so many shoes. Three brown, skeletonized leaves lie flattened in sharp relief near the recycling bin. Silence stretches. Jeffrey emits a snort. <laughs> Sound just like old Albert, don't it? The others nod slowly. My heart begins beating again. Sandra makes the next move. It's been very meaningful providing what help I could today. She begins, pulling a wool jacket around her narrow shoulders. But I think my usefulness here is done. Bobby's death means the passing of a dear friend. I will always remember her fondly. I know she wasn't a perfect parent, but holding on to resentment won't do anyone much good now she's gone. Sandra buttons the collar up to her chin. I wish you all well and good night. I can find my way out. She leaves the kitchen. Moments later, the front door slams shut and a brief draft rushes past us. Ethel pats her husband's shoulder and looks around. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm starving. It seems we aren't welcome here. Let's find a restaurant and get some food. Rosalind and Ross, you can both come out with us. I look away. That's generous, but I'm really not hungry. Rosalind bobs her head. I'll join you. Who knows when I might ever be in this part of the country again, and your family. Lauren shoots me a concerned glance. Are you sure? It's no problem. Don't be a recluse. My eyes aim again at the floor. No, I'm fine. I don't want company right now. Go ahead without me. Rosalind reaches for a thick sweater on the back of her chair and stretches into it. I think we all understand. You need some space to yourself. The group turns away. Footsteps fill the hall and winter air flows around me once more until the door firmly shuts. It carries the odor of decaying leaves and wet pavement. The wall clock reads minutes after seven. There's no more time to waste. I open Babette's alphabetized phone directory. Her handwriting is terrible. Church? Hopefully this isn't the local parish hotline. No, it can't be with an international country code. I punch in the number. It rings and rings. My boots tap against the floor. Finally, a voice breaks in, tinny and distant, but familiar. Hello? 
Oh, Bonnie, I'm so glad you're home. I take a full breath. Babette died this morning at school. She had a heart attack. I only found out a short while ago. Her family already knows. There was no avoiding it. The college administration got her daughters involved. They can buy the house just now. Bonnie is silent a moment, then collects herself. Okay, Ross, don't panic. I know exactly what to do. Has her attorney been contacted? Not by me. You're the first call. That's what she said. We're still good then. It's late now, but I can jump on this first thing tomorrow. How long until you're supposed to let the lawyer know? Babette said four days, but her executor is a colleague, and I'm sure everyone on the faculty has heard by now. It would look suspicious if I delay. Right, right, eh? But I won't need long getting things initiated, at least. Just give me one business day's head start. Let's see. It's still Saturday. Can you wait until Tuesday morning? Sure. Also, there's more. Her sis, well, long story. A relative is staying here. I'll tell you more about that later. Anyway, she's supposed to fly home tomorrow, unsure when exactly. I can't destroy any Canadian papers until that lady's gone for sure, but I'll wake up early and start as soon as possible. I understand. Do what you can. But I'm so curious. What happened when Babette's daughters showed up? After the things she always told me about them, I'm surprised you aren't calling from a payphone with your things in cardboard boxes. Yeah, I know. But here's the thing. They were really decent. As soon as I told them Babette didn't want family in the house, everyone just left. I couldn't believe it. But for all I know, the lawyer will tell me I have no right to be here. Plus, if I'm not evicted, there's only $65 in my bank account. That won't cover bills around here. Ross, if you're hurting for money, I can help. Thanks, Bonnie. I hope I don't need it. Piss, there's so much to think about. I have a full load of classes right now. Babette wouldn't appreciate me bailing. Well, just let me know, eh? I want you on top of things down there. Oh, God, Ross, this is heavy. I need a drink. You hang tight, okay? We'll keep this plan together. Sure, Bonnie. Good night, then. I hang up. My stomach growls. The sensation is so sharp I almost jump. Just a short while ago, any thought of food made me nauseous. Now even my professor's rotting cheese looks almost edible. I open the refrigerator and scan its shelves. There are a few roasted potatoes left over from last night in Tupperware. Beside them sits a carton of 2% milk, one sealed bacon package, and two raw pork chops in plastic. Babette's forbidden fruit jar still sits unopened. Slices of peach, mango, and cherry in clear syrup. I reach inside and unscrew the lid. It pops as suction releases and vapor escapes. My nose wrinkles. Ambrosia. No wonder she was protective. I take a fork and skewer one of the round yellow cherries. It crushes between my teeth in a fructose explosion. I stab a mango slice. Unbelievably delicious. I probe for another cherry, then lance a peach. The sugar electrifies my mouth from gums to throat. Within minutes, the entire container is empty. Well, not quite. I tip it back and swallow a deep gulp of syrup. Sweetness tingles through my blood. Both knees buckle. I sink down to the floor, still clutching the jar tightly. The kitchen spins, whimsical sailors in orange-enameled pots in mutual pursuit. Distant sensations are tightly wound wires that might snap or warp delicate clockwork. Runaway gears stripped away inside someone else's body. 
This is when my eyes should erupt with tears. I'll sob for Babette, who will never eat her fancy fruit, never scandalize another parishioner or dent the neighbor's truck again. Her classes will remain unfinished and tours canceled. Shanico, the high desert, central Oregon, all abandoned. I set aside the jar and brush a fist against my cheek. The knuckles come back dry. Everything freezes in place as the tide subsides, textured linoleum firm beneath me. I blink, stand up, and dump out the remaining syrup. It disappears down the drain, gurgling away in a spiral. With tense fingers, I dial the house of many pleasures. Hello, Salazar answers. Hey, I need Zoya. Is she there? Oh, hi, Ross. Let me check. Elena Lovitch record pogos in the background. Then Zoya picks up. Ross? Hello? Babette died this morning. She had a heart attack in front of 40 students before her Mount St. Helens tour, right on the bus. I recite the facts numbly. Oh my fucking God! That's terrible! Well, I mean, it's exactly what she would have wanted, right? Are you okay? Do you want me to come over? I don't think I can handle company right now. My brain is kind of going crazy. Hopefully it'll settle down by tomorrow. I think I just had a panic attack. I don't even know what that's supposed to be like. Ross, seriously, I'll catch the next bus over if you need me. No, thanks. I'm, I'm okay now, though. Just give me tonight by myself. I only wanted to tell you right away. I mean, I love you. It's a big deal, you know? Okay, maybe you're right. Take it easy and get some sleep. You sound pretty gone. I love you too, silly. Call me tomorrow, all right? Okay, I'll do that. Good night, then. I hang up. One task still remains. The wooden black forest clock ticks away in the dining room, long weights and chains almost fully extended. I check, making sure each arm is correctly positioned, then wind its mechanism. The long pendulum swings back and forth, oblivious that different hands perform the nightly ritual. I stare for a moment at the time-worn face, and then slowly walk downstairs. In the pantry, everything remains still, miniature Canadian National Rail cars on their circular track, and canned goods lined up row after row. I undress, switch off the lights, and lie down. Darkness presses all around, weighty with Babette's expectations. Every muscle is weary with fatigue, yet sleep won't come. Will the family show up tomorrow and kick me out? If my professor's Canadian affairs are illegal, am I now an accomplice? Anxieties fester with each heartbeat. After two uncomfortable hours, I detect a soft thump from above as the front door closes. Rosalind's footsteps creak into the kitchen. There is a liquid rush through the pipes as she draws water. Silence. Then her tread moves faintly upstairs. I hear nothing more and somehow, eventually, fall asleep.